Chapter Thirteen of Maria or the Wrongs of Women by Mary Wollstonecraft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen. By watching my only visitor, my uncle's friend, or by some other means, Mr. Venables discovered my residence and came to inquire for me. The maid servant assured him there was no such person in the house. A bustle ensued. I caught the alarm, listened, distinguished his voice and immediately locked the door. They suddenly grew still. I waited near a quarter of an hour before I heard him open the parlour door and mount the stairs with the mistress of the house, who obsequiously declared that she knew nothing of me. Finding my door locked, she requested me to open it, and prepared to go home with my husband, poor gentleman, to whom I had already occasioned sufficient vexation. I made no reply. Mr. Venables then, in an assumed tone of softness, entreated me to consider what he suffered and my own reputation and get the better of childish resentment. He ran on in the same strain, pretending to address me, but evidently adapting his discourse to the capacity of the landlady, who, at every pause, uttered an exclamation of pity, or, yes, to be sure, very true, sir. Sick of the farce, and perceiving that I could not avoid the hated interview, I opened the door, and he entered. Advancing with easy assurance to take my hand, I shrunk from his touch with an involuntary start, as I should have done from a noisome reptile with more disgust than terror. His conductress was retiring to give us, as she said, an opportunity to accommodate matters. But I bade her come in, or I would go out, and curiosity impelled her to obey me. Mr. Venables began to expostulate and this woman, proud of his confidence, to second him. But I calmly silenced her in the midst of a vulgar harangue, and turned to him, asking why he vainly tormented me, declaring that no power on earth should force me back to his house. After a long altercation, the particulars of which it would be to no purpose to repeat, he left the room. Some time was spent in loud conversation in the parlour below, and I discovered that he had brought his friend, an attorney, with him. The tumult on the landing-place brought out a gentleman who had recently taken apartments in the house. He inquired why was I thus assailed. The voluble attorney instantly repeated the trite tale. The stranger turned to me, observing, with the most soothing politeness and manly interest, that my countenance told a very different story. He added that I should not be insulted or forced out of the house by anybody. "'Not by her husband?' asked the attorney. "'No, sir, not by her husband.' Mr. Venables advanced toward him, but there was a decision in his attitude that so well seconded that of his voice. They left the house, at the same time protesting that any one that should dare to protect me should be prosecuted with the utmost rigour. They were scarcely out of the house when my landlady came up to me again and begged my pardon in a very different tone. For, though Mr. Venables had bid her, at her peril, harbour me, he had not attended, I found, to her broad hints to discharge the lodging. I instantly promised to pay her, and made her a present to compensate for my abrupt departure, if she would procure me another lodging at a sufficient distance, and she, in return, repeating Mr. Venables's plausible tale, I raised her indignation and excited her sympathy by telling her briefly the truth. She expressed her commiseration with such honest warmth that I felt soothed, 
for I have none of that fastidious sensitiveness which a vulgar accent or gesture can alarm to the disregard of real kindness. I was ever glad to perceive in others the humane feelings I delighted to exercise, and the recollection of some ridiculous characteristic circumstances, which have occurred in moments of emotion, has convulsed me with laughter, though at the instant I should have thought it sacrilegious to have smiled. Your improvements, my dearest girl, being ever present to me while I write, I note these feelings, because women, more accustomed to observe manners than actions, are too much alive to ridicule, so much so that their boasted sensibility is often stifled by false delicacy. True sensibility, the sensibility which is the auxiliary of virtue and the soul of genius, is in society so occupied with the feelings of others as scarcely to regard its own sensations. With what reverence have I looked up at my uncle, the dear parent of my mind, when I have seen the sense of his own sufferings, of mind and body, absorbed in a desire to comfort those whose misfortunes were comparatively trivial, he would have been ashamed of being as indulgent to himself as he was to others. Genuine fortitude, he would assert, consisted in governing our own emotions, and making allowance for the weakness in our friends that we would not tolerate in ourselves. But where is my fond regret leading me? "'Women must be submissive,' said my landlady. "'Indeed, what could most women do? "'Who had they to maintain them but their husbands? "'Every woman, and especially a lady, "'could not go through rough and smooth, "'as she had done, to earn a little bread.' "'She was in a talking mood, "'and proceeded to inform me "'how she had been used in the world. "'She knew what it was to have a bad husband, "'or she did not know who should. "'I perceived that she would be very much mortified "'were I not to attend to her tale,' and I did not attempt to interrupt her, though I wished her, as soon as possible, to get her out in search of a new abode for me, where I could once more hide my head. She began by telling me that she had saved a little money in service, and was over-persuaded, we must all be in love once in our lives, to marry a likely man, a footman in the family, not worth a groat. My plan, she continued, was to take a house, and let out lodgings, and all went on well, till my husband got acquainted with an impudent slut, who chose to live on other people's means, and then all went to rack and ruin. He ran in debt to buy her fine clothes, such clothes as I never thought of wearing myself, and, would you believe it, he signed an execution on my very goods, bought with the money I worked so hard to get, and they came and took my bed from under me, before I heard a word of the matter. Aye, madam, these are misfortunes that you gentlefolks know nothing of, but sorrow is sorrow, let it come which way it will. I sought for service again, very hard after having a house of my own. But he used to follow me, and kick up such a riot when he was drunk, that he could not keep a place. Nay, he even stole my clothes, and pawned them, and whenever I went to the pawnbroker's, and offered to take my oath that they were not bought with a farthing of his money, they said, it was all as one, my husband had a right to whatever I had. At last he enlisted for a soldier, and I took a house, making an agreement to pay for the furniture by degrees, and I almost starved myself, till I once more got beforehand in the world. After an absence of six years, God forgive me, I thought he was dead, and my husband returned, found me out, and came with such a penitent face I forgave him, and clothed him from head to foot. But he had not been a week in the house, before some of his creditors arrested him, and he, selling my goods, I found myself once more reduced to beggary, 
for I was not as well able to work, go to bed late and rise early, as when I quitted service, and then I thought it hard enough. He was soon tired of me, when there was nothing more to be had, and left me again. I will not tell you how I was buffeted about, till, hearing for certain that he had died in a hospital abroad, I once more returned to my old occupation, but have not yet been able to get my head above water. So, madam, you must not be angry if I am afraid to run any risk, when I know so well that women have always the worst of it when law is to decide. After uttering a few more complaints, I prevailed on my landlady to go out in quest of a lodging, and to be more secure, I condescended to the mean shift of changing my name. But why should I dwell on similar incidents? I was hunted, like an infected beast, from three different apartments, and should not have been allowed to rest in any, had not Mr. Venables, informed of my uncle's dangerous state of health, been inspired with the fear of hurrying me out of the world, as I advanced in my pregnancy, by thus tormenting and obliging me to take sudden journeys to avoid him, and then his speculations on my uncle's fortune must prove abortive. One day, when he had pursued me to an inn, I fainted, hurrying from him, and falling down, the sight of my blood alarmed him, and obtained a respite for me. It is strange that he should have retained any hope, after observing my unwavering determination, but, from the mildness of my behaviour, when I found all my endeavours to change his disposition unavailing, he formed an erroneous opinion of my character, imagining that, were we once more together, I should part with the money he could not legally force from me, with the same facility as formerly. My forbearance and occasional sympathy he had mistaken for weakness of character, and because he perceived that I disliked resistance, he thought my indulgence and compassion more selfish, and never discovered that the fear of being unjust or of unnecessarily wounding the feelings of another, was much more painful to me than anything I could have to endure myself. Perhaps it was pride which made me imagine that I could bear what I dreaded to inflict, and that it was often easier to suffer than to see the sufferings of others. I forgot to mention that, during this persecution, I received a letter from my uncle informing me that he had only found relief from continual change of air, and that he intended to return when the spring was a little more advanced. It was now in the middle of February, and that we would plan a journey to Italy, leaving the fogs and cares of England far behind. He approved of my conduct, promised to adopt my child, and seemed to have no doubt of obliging Mr. Venables to hear reason. He wrote to his friend by the same post, desiring him to call on Mr. Venables in his name, and in consequences of the remonstrances he dictated, I was permitted to lie in tranquilly. The two or three weeks previous, I had been allowed to rest in peace, but so accustomed was I to pursuit and alarm, that I seldom closed my eyes without being haunted by Mr. Venables's image, who seemed to assume terrific or hateful forms to torment me wherever I turned. Sometimes a wild cat, a roaring bull, or hideous assassin, whom I vainly attempted to fly, at others he was a demon, hurrying me to the brink of a precipice, plunging me into dark waves or horrid gulfs, and I woke, in violent fits of trembling anxiety, to assure myself that it was all a dream, and to endeavour to lower my waking thoughts, to wander to the delightful Italian vales I hoped soon to visit, or to picture some august ruins where I reclined in fancy on a mouldering column, and escaped, in the contemplation of the heart-enlarging virtues of antiquity, 
from the turmoil of cares that I had depressed all the daring purposes of my soul. But I was not long allowed to calm my mind by the exercise of my imagination, for the third day after your birth, my child, I was surprised by a visit from my elder brother, who came in the most abrupt manner to inform me of the death of my uncle. He had left the greater part of his fortune to my child, appointing me its guardian. In short, every step was taken to enable me to be mistress of his fortune, without putting any part of it in Mr. Venables's power. My brother came to vent his rage on me, for having, as he expressed himself, deprived him, my uncle's eldest nephew, of his inheritance, though my uncle's property, the fruit of his own exertion, being all in the funds or on landed securities, there was not a shadow of justice in the charge. As I sincerely loved my uncle, this intelligence brought on a fever, which I struggled to conquer with all the energy of my mind, for in my desolate state I had it very much at heart to suckle you, my poor babe. He seemed my only tie to life, a cherub, to whom I wished to be a father as well as a mother, and the double duty appeared to me to produce a proportionate increase of affection. But the pleasure I felt, while sustaining you, snatched from the wreck of hope, was cruelly danced by melancholy reflections on my widowed state, widowed by the death of my uncle. Of Mr. Venables I thought not, even when I thought of the felicity of loving your father, and how a mother's pleasure might be exalted, and her care softened by a husband's tenderness. Ought to be, I exclaimed, and I endeavoured to drive away the tenderness that suffocated me, but my spirits were weak, and the unbidden tears would flow. Why was I, I would ask thee, but thou didst not heed me, cut off from the participation of the sweetest pleasure of life? I imagined with what ecstasy, after the pains of childbed, I should have presented my little stranger, whom I had so long wished to view, to a respectable father, and with what maternal fondness I should have pressed them both to my heart. Now I kissed her with less delight, though with the most endearing compassion, poor helpless one, when I perceived a slight resemblance of him to whom she owed her existence, or if any gesture reminded me of him, even in his best days, my heart heaved, and I pressed the innocent to my bosom, as if to purify it. Yes, I blushed to think that its purity had been sullied by allowing such a man to be its father. After my recovery, I began to think of taking a house in the country, or of making an excursion on the continent, to avoid Mr. Venables, and to open my heart to new pleasures and affection. The spring was melting into summer, and you, my little companion, began to smile. That smile made hope bud out afresh, assuring me that the world was not a desert. Your gestures were ever present to my fancy, and I dwelt on the joy I should feel when you would begin to walk and lisp. Watching your wakening mind, and shielding from every rude blast my tender blossom, I recovered my spirits. I dreamed not of the frost, the killing frost, to which you were destined to be exposed. But I lose all patience, and execrate the injustice of the world, folly, ignorance, I should rather call it, but, shut up from a free circulation of thought, and always pondering on the same griefs, I writhe under the torturing apprehensions, which ought to excite only honest indignation, or active compassion, and would, could I view them as the natural consequence of things. But, born a woman, and born to suffer, in endeavouring to repress my own emotions, I felt more acutely the various ills my sex are fated to bear. I feel that the evils they are subject to endure degrade them so far below their oppressors as almost to justify their tyranny. 
leading at the same time superficial reasoners to term that weakness the cause, which is the only consequence of short-sighted despotism. End of chapter 13